Welcome to another episode of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. I'm Rick O'Shea. It has been the week in which I finally broke my reader's block. If you're not experiencing a reader's block at the moment, it has been a phenomenon amongst many people I know over the last five, six or seven weeks. Uh, the inability to read pretty much anything of any size or to concentrate on anything. Um, I got a lot of advice from uh, authors and from readers that I was talking to over the last while. It seems to be read for comfort, read something you know and something you like, uh, or read short as well. And reading poetry seems to be something that's getting people uh, through it at the moment. I think I've broken the logjam this week. I'm anxious not to jinx that one, uh, though. It's also the week in which Normal People, the TV series, turned up, and according to most of the people I spoke to, uh, may even be marginally better than Sally Rooney's original brilliant book. Uh, You'll be able to find the episodes of that on the RTE player, and of course, episodes three and four are this coming Tuesday night on RTE One TV. Speaking of reader's block, one of the things that helped get me unblocked recently was Nisha Dolan's brilliant debut novel, Exciting Times. It's just been published. Reviewers have been calling it a very modern love story and it's set in Hong Kong. There's a love triangle with all of the attendant frictions of sexuality, class, nationality all set against the backdrop of the turbulent life of one of the most exciting cities in the world. And Nisha Dolan now joins me on The Book Show. Nisha, how are you? Hi, I'm very well. How are you? Thank you for for joining us on on the programme. Maybe before I talk to you about the book, tell us briefly a little bit about the book, about exciting times, about the three main characters that we meet. Sure. So it's set in expat Hong Kong from 2016 to 17. So the characters believe that they have problems in that time slot. We might all fervently disagree reading it now, but um, that's how they see it. And the main character is a young Irish woman called Ava who goes to Hong Kong to teach TEFL out of basically a lack of anything more pressing to do with herself. And then while she's there... For similar reasons, she ends up in two different relationships. The first one being with a sort of emotionally repressed male British banker named Julian. And then he goes away for work and she finds herself in another entanglement with a Hong Konger named Edith who's working as a lawyer and he just kind of brings a bit more zest to everything. So then she's caught between a relationship that lets her not feel very much and not offer very much but not get much in return and one where um, a bit more is demanded of her, really. I think I was particularly taken by the book when I started it because it was set in Hong Kong and I was in Hong Kong last year just for three or four days and for the, for the first time in my life. Why set it there? Basically because it's a really fantastic place and <laughs> you don't say that wanting to romanticise it or package a touristy version of it, but just the everyday rhythms of it. I think are amazing. It's such a vibrant and varied city. And obviously I can only speak to what it was like for me as an Irish person during that time. So that's why I chose to show it through the perspective of someone else in that position. But sometimes it's nice to examine a great city like that in an everyday kind of way and not necessarily have it dominate the book, but have it inform things still. The relationships are fairly unique in this book. I mean, Ava's relationship with Julian is, is quite unusual. Ava's relationship with Edith is is quite unusual as well. Is it just that those sort of relationships are the ones that interest you to write about? I think people sometimes call it a modern love story. 
And I think it's true that it's modern in its choice of relationships to focus on, but it's not modern that those relationships are happening. Like all of us in our early 20s find ourselves falling together with people we don't have strong feelings about because we just want to be with someone. And that's how I characterise Ava and Julian to a large extent. And all of us in our 20s find ourselves exploring things about our sexuality and our general mode of being and, you know, queer people specifically for sure, but all of us, I think, if if you've got a coherent sense of who you are in your 20s that doesn't change afterwards, then you're quite a boring person, I'd submit. So I think that sense of flux and of uncertainty is something that really isn't peculiar to people born after 1980 or people in the 21st century or any of that, but maybe the curiosity to find ways to depict it in literature because we have so many stories about other experiences already might be new. I can't really say, but um, I hope it is something that people can see some facet of themselves in for sure. I think people may see some facets of themselves as well in the nature of, of class in this book as well. It's obviously something that you're you're interested in. There's there's a great contrast between Ava's experience and and Julian's Britishness. Although it's I mean it's a very specific kind of expat Britishness that he's he's living there. Class is obviously something that interests you to to write about as well. Yeah, and that's in a way an aspect of the book that I'm really glad it's reaching Irish readers so that I can discuss it with them because I think an element of the difference in our two countries' class systems that I've definitely observed in my own life is that it's a lot more bound up in stuff besides money for Brits. So they'll obsess over which supermarket you go to or really small things about your accent. And it's not that Ireland doesn't also have a class system that doesn't also structure how people relate to each other. But I think we're more frank about it. It's a lot new for Irish people to have money in any large numbers because historically the people who had that were... Um, largely the British landed gentry. So I think that does affect how we talk about class and I was definitely interested in exploring that. There are lots of other little moments within the book as well where you, where you look at other things and, and deal with other things. One that stood out to me in particular is where, um, where Eva, Eva in particular talks about the environment she says at one stage, I'm going to briefly quote you back to yourself, and I know sometimes authors hate this. The skies were thick and bronchial. I downloaded an app to check the air quality each morning. A happy face meant it was safe, a blank one that the health risks were moderate, and an angry one to stay inside. After seven consecutive angry faces, I deleted the app. I didn't need that negativity in my life. Do, do, do you think that represents a lot of our relationships with climate change stories in general? I think so. I definitely have difficulty filtering things out like that. And that was something I thought about when I was writing the book. How much do I want the character's awareness of stuff like that to reflect my own? But first of all, being uniquely panicked by climate change is itself an expression of privilege because if you grow up with your safety threatened in other ways, I don't think it's as much of a lurch in your experience to suddenly learn about this thing that makes your safety feel threatened when it wasn't before. So in Ava's case, that's her sexuality. She's never felt that the world's a secure place where no one's trying to harm her. For other people, it might be racism, it might be class, just anything where existence is always contingent. So I didn't write, want to write a book where climate change was the one big thing that suddenly makes us all worried. And I think as well, it's hard for me to think about the role of literature when I'm writing because that just sounds so self-important. But I do think sometimes about why do I come to novels? 
and it's usually not to have climate collapse explained to me like there's some very intelligent non-fiction on that subject already so while it would be remiss not to have it in at all I think I come to novels more to understand humanly how do you keep going in a world where things much bigger than you are happening and that you can only have an individual impact on so I tried to follow my curiosities more around that stuff albeit um we're still having the odd behavior like that in there for sure do, do you think that that's perhaps an experiment that we're all going through right now and that we're living from day to day yeah I think it's really hard when the default reaction for me and certainly for a lot of people is to try to work out what the rational way to respond to something is. But when the thing itself is mad, how do you even do that? Do you just rely on copying other people? But then if they also appreciate that the thing is mad and they're not sure what to do either, it's all a lot to take in. And I think especially if you're used to panicking more than other people are about the same thing that you're all worried about it's really hard to know where to go when suddenly they're more panicked so I've always been you know the person who doesn't fly because of climate change and stuff like that but then if everyone I know isn't leaving their house over something like does that mean that they weren't worried enough about the climate before does it mean they're too worried about this now just other people become a really unreliable gauge of how you should respond to things so I think books are a way to find a third space where you're not entirely in your own head considering things but you're also not directly looking at the behaviors of those in your vicinity it's that third camera way of access to how other people are thinking about things where you can consider their ideas not in a vacuum because books are so bound up in language and society and culture and all the rest of it but consider those ideas in a space where you don't have to respond immediately and where your reaction is therefore in many ways more considered for, for most authors you end up on the treadmill then at, at this point are you working on something new or is is, is that where your head is now yeah, I think I've um, decided to revert back to my initial reasons for writing, which is just to give myself something fun to escape into. So I have a draft of the second book, but it's a bit of a downer. And I don't say that as a reason that I mightn't eventually want to come back to it. But right now, definitely not. So I'm doing a third one that's just a lot of fun. I really like creating fun villains. So I have a lot of them in so far. I genuinely can't wait to read whatever happens next. Anisha Dolan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Vic. Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Now, with her take on this week's book news, it's Stephanie Preisner. Stephanie, you've read uh, Exciting Times as well. Yes, I read Exciting Times when I was on holidays and I loved it. I'm... I loved some of the sentences, a couple of them that I wrote down while I was reading. And I'm just more than even that book. I'm just excited to see where this young writer goes and kind of follow her career and keep reading her content as she ages and starts processing what she's going through. Yeah, I think it's. I think if I had started marking out every sentence I liked in the book, I might have marked out possibly more than was unmarked in the book. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, does anything else leap out at you amongst the newer releases? Yes, I have also just finished Steve Kavanagh's 50-50. It's just out and it's a great premise. I was kind of looking for something to escape into non-COVID content and this was perfect. So the premise is there's two 911 calls at the start of the book. 
One girl rings and is like, 911, my sister's just killed my father. She's going to kill me. You have to help. And then four minutes later, the other sister rings and says, 911, my sister's just killed my father. You have to help. She's going to kill me. Come quick. And the book goes on trying to work out which one of the sisters killed the father. It's brilliant. And it's the fantastically popular Steve Kavanagh uh, as well. That That's probably not going to need an awful lot of convincing for most people. I love this story. Emma Donoghue is completely booking the trend in publishing at the moment. Tell us about this. It's a really interesting decision, Rick, because The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donoghue is now going to be published in late July of this year. But it was supposed to come out in spring 2021. And while most or nearly all book releases in the world have been postponed until autumn or even later, this one is being brought forward. And the reason why it is being brought forward is because this book is set during the Spanish flu epidemic a hundred years ago, the last pandemic that we all lived through. Well, those of us who were alive then. It's a questionable or interesting decision, don't you think? I mean, I know when I was writing my book. The idea of bringing it forward a year would have been unthinkable because of all the drafts and stuff it had to go through. So I'm wondering whether the reader will be able to notice that this hasn't gone through all of those iterations. Maybe it has, but I'm just interested to see if the gift of time that a book needs has been ripped away from this one. It's Emma Donoghue. I would fairly much read anything that she writes. Tell me a little bit about the survey that you saw in The Guardian. I don't know how these universities are able to find the time or funding to do these random researches, but researchers at Durham University have teamed up with the Guardian newspaper at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and they've surveyed 181 authors. And I'm fascinated by the things that they found out. They said that 63% of authors hear their characters speaking to them while writing, which I guess makes sense in a small way. Like I write dialogue because I'm a screenwriter, so it necessitates that I hear the characters speaking to me. And also kind of, I'm a little bit of a narcissist, so everyone who I imagine talking talks in my voice. But some of the statistics in the survey, you just have to go and read it. Like 15% of respondents said that they have had a dialogue with the characters But that's like, that's a psychological problem, isn't it? I think that depends on the author and it depends on who they are. Most authors would tell you that their characters go off wandering in directions that they never uh, originally intended them to. I've never understood how how that works as an outsider, but I certainly appreciate it as a reader. Point taken. But like the characters don't generally, you don't respond back to fictional characters. You know, they say like the voices in your head aren't really a problem unless you start replying to them. And that's that 15% replying to fictional characters. I think it's a valid point. Finally, we're going to finish up with uh, some real characters and with a book deal that you personally are very excited about. I think the way that you've said me personally means that you are not as excited about this, but Harper Collins are publishing Harry and Meghan's biography. Harry and Meghan, for those of you living under a rock, are the British royals or the American slash Canadian royals now. It's all up for grabs. But I really am excited for this book because I want it to be juicy and a tell-all. I want it to be like a book version of a gossip magazine. And given that that it's a biography and it's uh, being called Thoroughly Modern Royals, who knows where that's going to go? But do you remember Fire and Fury, the Trump book? Like, I read that book with a bag of popcorn in my hand. I was like, "Mm, here we go, going to get the inside scoop. And that's what I want from this book. It is uh, lovely talking to you as always. That's our book news for this week. Stephanie Preisner, we'll talk again next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. 
Now it's that time where we match a book club with an author whose work they've read and they want to discuss a little bit more with him or her in a virtual sense these days. Before we meet the writer, we're going to find out about the readers. This week, we're off to Wicklow. Good evening. I'm Miriam Fismaris from Roundwood Book Club in County Wicklow. We used to have a different name, but the original founders, who are from Dublin, became outnumbered and we became the Roundwood Book Club. We are a group of 12 women and we are very happy to have it so. The consensus amongst us is that we are more relaxed without the input of men. We started here in Roundwood in 1999 with a group of six and we grew over the years. We have had a couple of dropouts and sadly one death. We are farmers, housewives, teachers, nurses, architects, accountants, bankers, lawyers, mums, grannies and a whole lot more. We meet once a month in each other's homes where we enjoy great conversations, great company and great food and wine. We have attended the Ennis Book Club Festival on a couple of occasions as a group and we all love that experience and fully intend making the trip a regular event. We have just read Mothering Sunday by Graham Swift and will discuss tonight at our Zoom meeting. We read Solar Bones in January 2017 and it appealed to the majority of us. As Miriam said there, this week's focus falls on Solar Bones by Mike McCormick. Here's Moira Losher from the Roundwood Book Club with some thoughts on it. I hadn't read the book before, or for that matter, even heard of it, so I came to it open-minded. Initially, I was a bit floored by the stream of consciousness. Then I just let my mind go and found myself gripped and brought along by the writer deep into himself. It was partly possible, I believe, because it's also the way my mind works, jumping from one thought to the next in contemplation of mindfulness. It is All Souls Day. Marcus Conway sits at his kitchen table and remembers, in flowing, relentless prose, he recalls his life in rural Ireland as a boy and forward as a husband and civil engineer. The narrator seems lost in thoughts while he is alone. Is he lonely or just enjoying the moments of being on his own? His unravelling thoughts makes us, the reader, wonder what set his mind wandering backwards and forwards at this time. This self-examination, this obvious sadness. And Mike McCormick, the author of Solar Bones, joins me now from Galway. Mike, how is life with you at the moment? <laughs> it's very quiet. Uh, we're living here in a small little cul-de-sac and I'm... I'm looking out on peach blossom and uh, a green patch of grass that no one is on. So very quiet. Um, now we've very little now for complaining about, I'll be honest with you. We're going to get straight into the questions from Roundwood. The first one up is Anne Byrne. Throughout Solar Bones, we get to know Marcus intimately in all his flawed wonderfulness as a man, son, husband, father, public servant and more. I'm wondering, did you know him fully from the start or did he develop and grow with the writing of the book? Great question. The book begins with Marcus and it began in my imagination with Marcus. Marcus presented himself very, very clearly and vividly as a, a man in his early 50s, slightly overweight, um, blundering around his own kitchen on the Angelus Bell. And I could see certain things about him straight away. I had a very clear sense of him as a married man. I had a very clear sense of him being at home when he should be at work. And why was that? 
I knew he was an engineer because for the longest time, ever since my early 20s, I've had an openness to working with an engineer. I, I've always believed that engineers make the world and I wanted an engineer to come and speak to me. So he immediately, I immediately recognized that he was an engineer. Now, and that's really as much as I had to go on from the beginning. And the rest of the things that his background, his relationship with his father, his relationship with his kids, his relationship with his wife and all the other people in the book. And that that was something that, no, I did not know that from the beginning. That was something that evolved as the book evolved and the details kind of gathered around him then in the four or five years that I spent working and talking with him on that. The second question we have for you is from Eileen Patterson. Reading Solar Bones brought me back to a time when I was first married and went to live in Lewisburg, County Mayo. The book recalled for me the landscape, the people and their great pride in themselves and their place. At the very end of the book, Marcus is in a coffee shop in Westport. The scene was so real I could picture him there, could picture the town, Coke Patrick in the distance and the magnificent Clue Bay. The narrator seemed to be an observer of his own life. In these surreal times, we are all spectators in our own lives. We have become observers to a certain extent. I'd like to ask the author why he deliberately paints Marcus as an observer or more accurately a spectator in his own life. This seems at odds with his love of his family and the landscape. Yeah, um, I wouldn't have thought that he was a spectator uh, in his own life. No, I know that that's being a spectator and being an observer, that that's one of the side issues of writing in the present tense, writing in the continuous present tense. Narrators always kind of have a tendency to present themselves as monitoring the ongoing moment. But uh, most of the book is written in the past tense in which he speaks deeply and immersively, I would have thought, about his upbringing and his childhood and his relationship with all the people, father, mother and uh, the community in which he lives in. And um, you're right to draw attention to the, the presence and his immersion in Lewisburg, Westport and Mayo. Those places are dear to my heart. They they are what I know. The point you make about, uh, about being um, immersive and having a life and everything like that, that's one of the things that drew me to Marcus, was his complete involvement in the world. He has a, a family, he has work, he has engagement with the wider community, he has to be political, he's had a brush with religion, he even has this ongoing, if baffling, engagement with art through his daughter and that. So it, 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 um, so I wouldn't have thought that he was a, an observer in his life. I would have thought that he had a very deep immersion uh, in this world. I've often said that if I ever met him, you know, if I walked into a bar and the only stool at the bar was beside Marcus Conway, I would have no difficulty sitting down and talking to him. That I knew there would be plenty to talk about because he would have, he would be a great maker of conversation and that. So he is a great liver of his life, I think. Um, even if he is a kind of a baffled and sometimes astonished liver of his own life and that. Although I think, Mike, presumably if he did walk into a bar and Marcus was there, there might be another series of questions to be asked uh, before you even got to have the conversation with him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a final question for you, uh, although I'm conscious you may have answered a little of it already. From Wicklow, here's Moira Losher again. Why said Solar Bones in Mayo? Is it because of its remoteness and appearing to be cut off 
from the rest of the country? That's a good question. And the older I get as a writer, the more books I write, the more important the question becomes to me. I set the book at Mayo, firstly because it's what I know. So an awful lot of my characters speak out of that place. But also, Mayo is an extraordinary place. Mayo gives itself to incredible extremities, almost kind of imaginative extremities in that. There's a lot of the things in the book that I didn't make up. At the beginning, he remarks that three Mayo men have given their lives on hunger strike for the Republican cause during peacetime. I didn't make that up. I didn't make up the fact that there was a licensed hermit working in the area in Lewisburg. She had the whole of the wide world to choose from, but she chose Mayo. Um, you know, I don't make up the, the grandeur of the landscape. I don't make up the fact that there are so many visionary shrines in Mayo that knock and Crook Patrick was right out my back door as a child. Um, so there's this, there's this kind of imaginative people and people are, are sometimes I think at their wits end in Mayo and that, and I don't mean that in a bad way but we think of the hereafter we have a tendency to look towards God and we are I'd like to think that we were people for the big questions it's it's a particular idea of Mayo there's you know Mayo is, is a big place with a big big landscape and a big geography and it's not all given to such psychic drama or melodrama but there is a big part of it that is, and, and that's the mayo that spoke to me in, in the writing of this book. I think, Mike, there's probably a, a much longer series of conversations we could have about this. But just before you go, you have an event online on Monday, I believe. Yes, I do. Um, an event online on Monday, on May the 4th at 8pm. It's a three-way conversation, myself and Mark O'Connell, the author of uh, Notes from an Apocalypse, and Sinead Gleeson, the author of uh, her essay collection, Constellations. And we are being interviewed or we're talking together from the Moore Institute in, in, in UI Galway. Basically, we're talking about how has this lockdown quarantine thing, how has it affected us as writers and, and as men and women and fathers and mothers and husbands and that kind of thing. It's a, a broad discussion on it and that someone came to us with the request to ask, how are you writers getting on? And we thought, oh, this would be an interesting subject for a discussion. So that's on Monday, May the 4th at 8pm. You'll be able to see that at www.moorinstitute.ie and that is on Monday the 4th at 8 o'clock. Mike McCormick, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. If you haven't read Solar Bones yet, it's one of those books that I've been pressing into people's hands ever since it came out. It comes highly recommended from me anyway. Uh, grab yourself a copy if you get the chance. If your book club would like to put a few questions to a particular author, get in touch with us now. Send us your details to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you get yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured in this week's programme.